Welcome back to episode six of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bumani. We have an array of topics to talk about, such as the resulting factors in the divisional round of the NFL playoffs for the respective NFC and AFC teams, as well as the intricacies and diverse aspects of where could the Brooklyn Knicks go in terms of a team-oriented direction as they have accumulated James Harden in a recent blockbuster deal last week. Harden has currently played two games for the Nets at a very high octane level. First game, he averaged a triple-double, led by 30-plus points, and in the second game, he had a 30-plus point, 10-plus assist performance as well. Brooklyn's been 2-0 since Harden has joined the squad. Kyrie Irving is expected to rejoin the team from his seven-day um, sabbatical, I might call it, as of now. And Brooklyn's trying to create a big three with KD, Harden, and Kyrie. I'll go very in-depth on how I feel that that trio could formulate into something bigger than people are giving credit for it possibly being down the line in not just the Eastern Conference, but in the NBA as a whole. But I want to talk about the divisional playoff performances last weekend, last Saturday, and last Sunday in particular. And we're going to start off with the teams that made it. And I'm going to want to send a congratulations to the Buffalo Bills. They're in the AFC Championship for the first time since last decade in the 90s, um, the 1990s to be exact. I want to send the congratulations to the Green Bay Packers. They're right back into the NFC Championship game for a second year in a row, 13-3, back in the conference's final two, and in essence, the final four in the NFL in particular. Also for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, this is their first NFC Championship appearance since 2003. Last time they were there, they not only won the conference, but won the Super Bowl. Tom Brady has been able to elevate this team to heights that they've never been able to reach. And the Kansas City Chiefs, their slogan throughout the year has been titled Run It Back. And despite a scary injury to Patrick Mahomes that to this day, we don't really know if he'll be fully 100% and ready to go for the AFC Championship game. But the Kansas City Chiefs are the first team since the 2000 Eagles to reach their conference championship game three years in a row. Both teams were coached by Andy Reid. So congratulations to those four teams. I'm going to go in-depth in how each game played out, what I saw from my own viewing eye, what I thought was the turning point of the game, what elevated the victor to a victorious height, and what made the loser kind of fluctuate to a low level of performance to where currently now they are at the crib, sitting on the couch, spectating like all other playoff participants that had early exits or non-playoff participants that weren't even in the dance altogether. First, going to start off with the AFC football game between the Baltimore Ravens and the Buffalo Bills. Now, I picked the Ravens to win this football game. By the way, my predictions for the division around, I was 2-2. Two two. So, for a second week in a row, I had two predictions that were incorrect. I picked Baltimore to beat Buffalo, kind of going away with this narrative that I've had heading into the playoffs. Because I felt like even though Buffalo beat the Indianapolis Colts, they showed various flaws in terms of defensively their inability to stop the run at a, at a productive level, not being able to get quality pressure on Philip Rivers. The Rivers had a very productive day through the air. And the only thing that limited the Indianapolis Colts was their inability to execute in the red zone. Bypassed uh, a field opportunity with four and fourth down, were able to execute it. And on the other end, when they did take a field goal to be able to cut the lead to four, their kicker missed. So they weren't really able to execute the levels of success that they were positioning themselves to possibly achieving, while the Buffalo Bills did quite the opposite. 
And it was the same thing for the Baltimore Ravens. Just like Indianapolis, they dominated the Bills in very important statistical stats offensively. They outpassed the football, and Baltimore is the worst pass defense in all the football. They had more passing yards than the Bills, 190 to Buffalo's 188. Uh, they ran the ball at a high octane clip. Like we all expected, they ran it for 150 yards to Buffalo's 32. They converted third downs at a high rate, 7 to 17 on third down to Buffalo's 413. And they even, well, Lamar was sacked more. Lamar Jackson got sacked four times to Josh Allen's two. But the difference was red zone. Buffalo reached the red zone twice, executed on one scoring play. They were able to get a touchdown out on one of their rare red zone trips. Baltimore's in the red zone three times and didn't get any points out of it. Justin Tucker missed two field goals. And Lamar Jackson had a game-breaking interception within the red zone right after Buffalo marched down the field and scored a touchdown to go up 10-3. It seemed like Baltimore was going to match Buffalo in points as well and tie the game back up. Lamar Jackson had a ill-advised interception where he just locked in on his slot tight end, Mark Andrews to be exact, in triple coverage was picked off by Teron Johnson, and he went the distance, 101 yards for a touchdown. Now, if you look at the numbers, Josh Allen did not play particularly well. And Buffalo went out of their way not to establish the running game. They think ran the ball only once in the first half, ran it a little bit more consistently in the second, and I thought it was very influential in opening up that second-half drive where they were able to march down the field and get on the board with a touchdown where Allen was able to connect with Stephon Diggs. Allen was 23-37, 205 yards and one touchdown. I thought Baltimore did a very good job in terms of the coverages, and while they weren't able to get to Josh Allen on a, while they weren't able to get Josh Allen to the ground, they were able to rush him, hurry his throws. But for the most part, I felt like Allen was off. He had receivers open on a variety of passing concepts, and he was just either a little bit too high, a little bit too low. He, in essence, played like the old Josh Allen that we have been accustomed to seeing the first two years he's been in the league. Um, since then, he's been, for lack of a better term, on point this postseason, and not only this postseason, but throughout the regular season as well. He was not at his finest hour, but neither was Lamar Jackson, who wasn't able to rush for over 100 yards like he was able to against the Tennessee Titans. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even the team's leading rusher that went to Gus Edwards. Instead, Lamar Jackson was coerced to be able to make plays within the pocket and be a proficient passer within that environment, and he kind of wasn't able to do so. He's 14 to 24. It's 50% completion rate, 162 yards, but one interception. And it felt like in the first half, he struggled in terms of taking what the defense gave him. I thought Buffalo, not only after the first drive, where it seemed as if Baltimore was destined to just run all over them, they, in essence, contained him in the pocket. They played a lot of QB contain and a plethora of man, beat, man coverage on the back end. And then sprinkled a little bit of blitzing concepts in the second and third where they'd send an extra defensive back rusher to him to hurry Lamar's decision-making. But they didn't play zone. They played zone in the first half, and then they got away from zone and completely played man after they pretty much saw that Lamar eventually started to take those checkdowns. He didn't take the checkdowns in the first half that the defense gave him. And then in the second half, when they contained him and brought consecutive blitzing you know, parameters and pretty much playing man across the board, when the middle of the field was not open to him, he either struggled to complete the passes towards the boundary or he just refused to look towards the boundary as a whole to be effective as a passer. And this kind of brings me to my biggest point with Lamar. And this is on me as an analyst. I feel like Baltimore running the football at a high team rate would be enough to get past Buffalo. And even though, even though Josh Allen was relatively 
neutralized and in essence unproductive in comparison to what he has been in the last playoff game and throughout the regular season, Lamar's inconsistency as a boundary passer kills them. Not only kills their team, but it kills his ability to progress as a talent. And granted, all year, Greg Roman and the receiving quarter that Lamar Jackson has had has been giving tons of flack. They've continued to get flack after the fact. I've seen tons of Raven fans and tons of Lamar supporters on the internet say it's the receiver's fault. It's Greg Roman's fault for not drawing a more complex, variant passing concept style that can allow Lamar to utilize his passing abilities to his fullest advantage. It's his receiver's fault and their ability to not be able to get open and things of that nature. And my response to that is, while those facts are true, I can also make a powerful statement that they are what they are in large part because his coaching staff, and it doesn't just, it doesn't just start with his offensive coordinator. It also starts with John Harbaugh as well. Acknowledge and know the limitation within their quarterback's skill set. And they create an offense that doesn't allow him to be put in situations where they know he won't be able to execute it at a high octane level. So in essence, they run a very multi-complex triple option wishbone type run echelon system where they run triple option concepts. They usually pass out of RPOs. And if there is a design pass play, Lamar has in essence two routes that he can go to. And a lot of these routes are, as Court Warner showed online on social media, kind of bunched up on one another. Well, he'll have an option maybe to mark Andrews in one flat and then maybe two inches away from that flat, Marquise Hollywood Brown is another option as well, routing his way towards the boundary. And there isn't a lot of deep post concepts or outs or comebacks near the boundary because Baltimore knows. They see it more so than we do during practice, during training camp, during pregame, during postgame, during, they know. Lamar is not a proficient enough passer outside the numbers. When it's inside the numbers, most importantly in the middle of the field, he's great. When he's able to line it up to Mark Andrews down the seam, when he's able to hit guys on slants, things of that nature, he's your guy. In breaking route concepts towards the middle of the field. If it's anything on the edges, he can't do it. And Buffalo saw that. Now, Give Leslie Frazier credit. He was able to do what Tennessee wasn't, mainly because Buffalo wasn't as bad as a defense that Tennessee was. Tennessee struggled to get pressure on the quarterback with four. And he also struggled to stop the run. And so while the year prior they had a Jarrell Case, he was able to bring push up the middle and allow the fast backers on the edge to get to Lamar and contain him um, in a box and force him to the outside where they had the speed to keep up with him. They didn't have that this year. Jadavion Clowney wasn't really able to stay healthy. They missed on Vic Beasley. Casey isn't that element within the interior as a nose tackle to provide that push. So a lot of Lamar to run up the middle into the boundaries with ease. Against Buffalo, they had the speed on the outside with Milano. They had the speed on the outside with Tremaine Edmonds. They had the edge discipline led by Jerry Hughes, who had a monster game in terms of providing pressure to get to Lamar. And if he wasn't getting to Lamar and bringing him to the ground, he was in his face enough to allow Lamar to at times step up into oncoming rushers who in essence eventually brought him down when Jerry wasn't and so the way the game was kind of situated Leslie Fletcher basically did this he played QB contain and a bunch of man coverage concepts on the back end and basically said you know what I don't believe his receivers can get open 
which they've struggled to do so consistently. And usually in the NFL, when a receiver isn't breaking open, which is nine, which is nine times out of ten, a common theme in the NFL, a quarterback has to be able to throw guys open when the when the route alignment is met by great coverage. And Lamar just isn't skilled enough to do that on the edges. And this is something that he's going to have to do in the offseason. Josh Allen showcased to many quarterbacks and also many OCs and general managers and front office NFL affiliates everywhere that you can put your guy, you can put your quarterback in the lab and perfect his ability to be more accurate as a passer. While you can't improve arm strength, arm strength is something you're born with. You can improve anticipatory throwing aspects within your quarterback, and you can also improve on his accuracy as well. And that starts with your footwork. And Lamar's footwork has always been helter-skelter. It was always helter-skelter at Louisville. Even when Bobby Petrino went out of his way to make Lamar improve as a passer every year because they ran a more pro-style oriented offense, that was where we all can agree that was Lamar's better passing years within his career. You can make a case that he's regressed as a passer at the pro level compared to what he was at the college level because Petrino drilled it in on him that I need you at times to drop back in the pocket and make the precise throw, whether it's underneath, outside the numbers, or down the seams. Because in our offense, that's what we're that's what we're going to need you to do within my system. And Greg Roman's system, driven by RPOs, dual threat ability from his quarterback in a run-option-based set, they don't really demand him to be that type of player. But in the playoffs, when defenses game plan and skill set their agenda around making Lamar be that guy he isn't prepared or talented enough to do that because he hasn't been pushed by his organization by his coaches to do so so while getting rid of Greg Roman in an ideology of making uh, an ideology of making Lamar improve as a player is ideal getting rid of him because you feel like his concepts are too rudimentary and doesn't allow Lamar to blossom isn't fair because if we're gonna go with that narrative we have to understand why has it been that way for two years now? Is it an indictment on what the coaching staff feels Lamar is as a passer? And if it truly is, then we have to hold accountability on Lamar in terms of improving as a quarterback. And I'm going to give you an example. Lamar Jackson's dual threat ability. Not just his dual threat ability. I'm going to say his talent at the quarterback position in the NFL reminds me a lot of Cam Newton in terms of they're not – the same guy, Newton was a way more polished passer than Lamar was coming out of college, had a way stronger arm, way natural throw of the football. But Newton struggled with anticipatory throws and accuracy as well throughout his career. And he never improved on those elements. And I can make a great case. And I've been saying this for the past five years. The quarterback Cam Newton was coming into Carolina is still the quarterback he currently is today, heading that is currently on his final leg in New England. We'll see where that goes in the offseason. Lamar Jackson, not on, I can't even say Lamar Jackson is that in comparison to what Cam Newton was as a passer. I can make a case that Lamar Jackson got worse as a passer at the pro level because Baltimore was so hell-bent on building an offense around his athletic skill set that they never, in my opinion, made a conscientious effort to showcase to him the importance of him improving as a passer, elevating this team as an offense because Baltimore defensively played good enough to win. Now, granted, Buffalo let him off the hook by not choosing to establish the running game, I don't know if that's a microcosm of they didn't trust their running ability. It's something that they've kind of tailed off of doing at a productive level as of late, not just in the last two postseason games, but towards the tail end of the regular season. And, you know, Josh Allen was going to have to make the throws and Josh Allen wasn't at his 
most successful clip due in large part because it was a very windy day in northern New York, things of that nature. But the defense played a huge part in that as well. Outside of Stephon Diggs being able to go off because he is the all-pro talent that he is, they were able to stay in front of a maimed Cole easily, kind of be in the hip pocket of a John Brown, um, be in the hip pocket of a Gabriel Davis. So if your name wasn't Stephon Diggs, nobody else was breaking free off of coverage. Lamar Jackson, just like Drew Brees, is the reason why the Baltimore Ravens, is the reason why their team didn't win. Poorest quarterback play. And then he got knocked out um, late in the third quarter. We had to see Tyler Huntley, a practice squad, dual threat run, option-oriented quarterback, come in and take his place. And he played admirably if we want to take into account that he never had practice reps prepping for this moment because Baltimore didn't expect Lamar to get hurt. Came in, played admirably, put Baltimore in position to be in scoring situations to kind of keep the game a little bit more respectable. He wasn't able to execute because he also isn't the most polished passer. But going back to what I said before, what made Josh Allen take the next step as a passer is Buffalo's offensive coaching staff, led by Brian Dable, got to Josh Allen and is like, look, the reason why we weren't able to fulfill our postseason ceiling of the year prior is because you didn't improve as a passer in terms of your accuracy and anticipatory reads, not just on the bodies, but all over the field. Well, Josh, with Lamar, he won't have to start at ground zero, like, well, that's, that's a little bit cap. He's going to have to start a little bit at a lower level of, of ground. I can't even say a lower level of ground zero. I don't even think that's a terminology. But in comparison to Josh Allen, he is going to have to start at a lower level of development because I think his footwork is shoddy. At times, it's perfect. At times, it's all over the place. He has to develop a consistent arm angle release when it comes to throwing the football. At times, he likes to sidearm like he's Phil Rivers and Mahomes. And while in certain situations where the coverage is tight in the middle of the field, and that will work on the boundaries when he's sidearming it to somebody that easily beats his man off a boundary route towards the sidelines, it doesn't get there accurately like it should. And we saw that on a route concept where he was pressured, but he went through his reads relatively well under the face of the blitz and was able to see Mark Andrews leak out of his route towards the sideline, towards the boundary, but his sideline ability allowed the ball to skip to the dirt. So his footwork, his release point as a thrower of the football, coinciding with the fact that he's going to have to work on anticipatory throws towards the boundaries, those are all aspects he's going to have to work on the offseason. Marquise Hollywood Brown, who in my opinion has gotten a lot of slight in terms of not being the ideal receiver that the team needs, I feel like he's a great talent is being underutilized because his quarterback is handicapped in terms of his, his poorest development as a passer. He came out on social media and made a statement saying he's talked to Lamar and Lamar has, has told him that he's going into the lab and he's going to get better. And what Josh Allen has shown is that as a quarterback, you can improve anticipation and accuracy as a passer. It all starts with the base of your lower body as a throw. What is your footwork like? What is your base in terms of the platform that you release from when you throw the football? What type of arm motion do you have? It can be done. And we will see early on if it is done. And if Lamar Jackson, who has a relatively strong arm, improves those aspects of his passing game, he'll not only improve as a passer and make sure to elongate his career beyond just another second ludicrous contract, he'll help elevate Baltimore into a true championship contender.
And in game two, we had Green Bay and the Los Angeles Rams. Now, granted, the LA Rams, Green Bay Packers game, that played before the Baltimore Ravens Buffalo Bill game last Saturday. But the way I'm kind of breaking it down on the podcast is in a little bit of a diverse order in this situation. So I'm going to talk about this second. Green Bay did a fabulous job of neutralizing the Rams to all pro talents, Jalen Ramsey in the secondary and Aaron Donald in the interior. Now, Aaron Donald was not 100%. When it came out saying that he was going to be playing on a torn abdomen and he was going to play football, you just knew he wasn't going to be 100%, especially it's the upper part of your body that offensive linemen are going to be putting their hands on and pushing you back to resist your ability to get by them and get to the quarterback. And you could tell from the opening possession, he was heavily flustered that the likes of Elton Jenkins, who has done a very admirable job of playing multiple positions on the Green Bay offensive line at a very high obtained clip, he was frustrated that he was able to block him one-on-one single-handedly. Got into a little scuffle, and that showcased to me his, not sign of defeat, but his openly, but his openness towards letting everybody on the field know, I'm not well, and I'm frustrated by it. Now, on the flip side, Jalen Ramsey was healthy, and Green Bay did a very good job of scheming certain passing concepts away from him and always putting him on the move, making him kind of be in no man's land. But I thought the Rams, whose defensive coordinator is now the head coach of the L.A. Chargers, was able to get the job, I think, last Sunday. It was reported, did a horrible job of coming out in the first offensive possession with the Packers and playing off coverage on Devontae Adams. And it wasn't just on Devontae. It was basically on a lot of the Packer receivers. They played a lot of off coverage, as in they feared we don't want to press up and get beat because they knew maybe coming into the game, look, our best pass rushing interior D lineman isn't healthy. And we didn't aren't comfortable enough to play press man coverage at the top of the routes because we know our pass rush isn't going to be able to get home because of it, and we don't want to get beat on deeper routes beyond the field. Then John Johnson got hurt. He got a concussion like the second quarter. Your best safety's not there. And then even though Jalen Ramsey didn't get schooled by Devontae Adams, a lot of people are painting on the internet, he didn't play particularly well. He didn't look into it. He, he helped cater into the off-coverage brand of football that defensively the Rams were playing, and he didn't play relatively well. But Green Bay, and I said it coming into this game, and I said it on the podcast, they're at their best when they run the football and when Aaron Jones is leading the rushing charge. And Aaron Jones played well. He had a huge 60-yard breakthrough in like the early part of the third quarter that kind of helped break things open for Green Bay offensively. And he finished the game with 14 carries, 99 yards, and I think a touchdown, right? Am I correct? I think he was able to get a touchdown. Alan Lazard was able to get a huge passing play down the sideline that ultimately broke the game open. And that was predicated off of the rushing attack that they were able to get going off of Jones, off of Williams, and off of A.J. Dillon. And so while Aaron Rodgers played relatively well, 300-yard passing almost, two touchdowns, their running game and their offensive line set the tone and they would be able and able to be productive run blockers and productive pass blockers as well. Offensively, while I thought the Rams' offense was going to hold them back because we didn't know about the health of Jared Goff, I didn't know if Green Bay, I, not Green Bay, I didn't know if the LA Rams were, able, were going to be able to duplicate their rushing success against a Green Bay defense that has improved of recent weeks. They played relatively well until the game got out of hand. When they were able to have balance, 
And Jared Goff was able to hit his guys on the numbers off a of play action pass. They did pretty well. Cam Akers ran for over 90 plus yards. Jerry Goff didn't throw an interception, didn't throw for 200 yards, but he completed 50% of his passes, threw a touchdown. Things looked good, but defensively, their strength of their team didn't come to play. And then when their offense got behind and they had to abandon the play action pass formula that's orchestrated by a nice, solid, consistent running game. And Goff had to draw back and make plays through the air. He's not mobile enough. He's not attentive enough, and he's not disciplined enough to be productive in that offensive construct. And it's one of the main reasons why Sean McVay, after the game, when Goff played relatively well in this in this matchup, but he didn't play well throughout the season, came out and said, it's no guarantee Jerry Goff is going to be his starter next season. And that means a lot, considering that $118 million remain on Jerry Goff's current contract that he got a massive extension on a couple of years ago. But kudos to Green Bay. They played bully football. They played playoff football. They, along with Tampa Bay, were two NFC teams that have had that have had prestigious quarterback play throughout the season. But when it came time to play football, they went through their running game offensively to set the tone, not just physically, but emotionally to their opponent that, yeah, we're not only going to continue to run it down your throat, we're going to let you know we're here and this is how we're going to play our offense. We're going to play through the rushing attack. And if you're able to slow us down running wise, maybe you got a chance. If not, it's going to be a very long day. And it was a very long day for the LA Rams. Now, third divisional playoff game. This was probably the best game of the day. But the Cleveland Browns and the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, before we go in depth to how that game was able to turn out, want to send my condolences and prayers to Patrick Mahomes. Hopefully he's able to play in the AFC Championship game. Personally, in my opinion, there was different reports. One report that came out Monday was he didn't have a concussion, but currently, according to Kansas City, you know, their camp, their organization, they're saying it's too early to tell if he can play, which sounds like to me he's still going through concussion protocol. It was a scary hit to where it didn't seem like his helmet hit any part of the ground or any part of another opponent's helmet very hard, but he got up, he staggered. It was on a speed option concept that Andy Reid and the Chiefs have ran with Mahomes the past two years. It ended pretty badly when Mac Wilson hogtied tackled Mahomes around the neck to prevent him from getting the first down. I don't really think it was anything malicious by it. It just was a very physical tackle that took an uneven break. And it seemed like during that time, it was 22-10, Cleveland was going to come back and win the game. And they scored on the next possession with Kareem Hunt, got a defensive stop when Chad Henney threw the vertical pass down the field, but they didn't execute on their last offensive possession of the game. And then defensively, they sold the bag. And I'm going to go in depth with that as well. But before Mahomes got hurt, the Browns had no answer. And the difference, in my opinion, which is why I never took the Browns seriously as an upset threat until Mahomes got hurt, is because defensively, they struggle to get to the quarterback when the individual isn't named Miles Garrett. And when Miles Garrett was in and out of the lineup within the game late in the fourth quarter, Brown showed their hand in terms of being like, we got to break up, we got to blitz, we got to blitz, we got to blitz because we're rushing four and we're not getting there. They didn't resolve the pass rushing issues coming into the season. All Garrett did was improve on his positive 
earlier stint within his career, building upon a solid year the year prior onto an all-pro Pro Bowl season. But he's only one guy. I thought Cleveland did a pretty good job of finding ways to utilize him as a pass rushing specialist. Gary did a great job of being a hustle guy. When he wasn't getting to the quarterback, he was always around a run play, whether he was behind the run play because it was a positive gain or within it because he was able to wreck it for a loss or things of that nature. They just weren't able to get to the quarterback. And then another thing, they weren't able to stop the run. And Kansas City's rushing attack was, has been underrated all year. Individuals make comments about their inability to be successful in the red zone because they don't have a solid running game. Can they play a grounded out game because they're all glitz and glamour, things of that nature, even before Mahomes got hurt? They ran the football pretty well. That opening drive was a physical, time-consuming job that presented a lot of running concepts that they executed very well. And then when Chad Haney was in the game, even though he went six of eight and made a couple of huge plays down the stretch that I'm going to go in-depth into in a few minutes, they ran the football pretty well with Darrell Williams, who had a very successful rushing game, I might add. He was able to run the football at a clip that I don't think a lot of guys expected, 13 carries, 78 yards. And before Mahomes got hurt, 21-30, 255, a touchdown. So if Mahomes stays within the game, doesn't have the freakish injury off of that tackle, he's going to throw for over 300 yards. He's probably going to get another touchdown. And while Cleveland's offense, their best bet was going to be controlling the clock and being able to keep the Kansas City Chiefs offense off the field, defensively they had to get some type of stop. And they did. They got a huge break, passing concept when Chad came into the game, Airbnb, and the Chiefs offensive brass decided to get hella aggressive on a deep vertical shot down the field. My only issue was, why were you running that concept with Demarcus Robinson, the team's worst receiver, instead of running it with Tyreek Hill? Didn't work. It was basically a punt that was picked off by Carl Joseph. And at that point, you were thinking, Cleveland, Cleveland, man, they're going to do it. Kansas City, they made two very important defensive plays and what I revered as being the Chiefs' best defensive team in comparison to the team last year. They had the huge forced fumble at the one-yard line that was controversial at the fact presenting two ideologies in terms of rulings within the NFL. Um, Sorensen did a great job of spearing illegally uh, Rashard Higgins at the one-yard line, preventing him from going into the end zone and pushing the and pushing Cleveland's ability to cut the lead to a fair margin. They were going to be down six. Um, Sorensen speared him. And a lot of time, no one really thought it was helmet to helmet, let's be well. We thought it was a freakish play that happened because Higgins was a little bit overly aggressive in terms of trying to catch the ball and do everything at once. Catch the ball, yards after the catch, let me get the touchdown. See it in slow-mo, it's clear, it's helmet to helmet. And while helmet to helmet has been true for a defenseless receiver, Higgins was a runner. But according to, you know, officials, you know, behind the scenes working with you know, broadcasters in the booth, they say, no, helmet-to-helmet situation like that should have been called. It wasn't NFL missed it. The issue I had was the touchback rule. Like, all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, the touchback rule off of a fumble when an offensive player fumbles the football in the end zone. And it's a touchback. It's a horrible rule. I'm like, dude, I mean, that rule has existed for years. And there's been instances within games, like when the Saints played and Anzalone blocked the punt regular season against the Kansas City Chiefs. and Well, he didn't block the punt, but he didn't recover the block punt and it rolled into the end zone. No one made a huge hoopla about that when we got finessed off of that situation. It's a rule that's existed throughout the years. 
and an offense that's already kind of protected in terms of the quarterback is off of tough hits, running receivers are in terms of defensive hits. Defensive players have literally had to change how they play the game off of protecting the offensive player heavily. We're going to reward the offense for being at the precipice, being at the precipice, that's not a rule, being at the precipice of an end zone score. They fumble out the end zone. It's like, oh man, they tried so hard. Let's give it to them in the red zone, not the 20. No, you know, start tough luck for Higgins. And I don't blame him for doing what he did in the moment. It's a high stakes game. The team is losing. And he's like, look, man, I got to make a play because we're down 13. If I get this in, man, it's a huge boost for us hanging to the locker room. He fumbled. Chiefs drive down the field, kick a field goal. It's a 19-3. It's a 19-3 or 16-3 game. It's a 13-3 game. When the fumble happened, Chiefs go down the field to kick it 16-3. But I thought the big leader with that, that was a huge stop. And then Cleveland got small. They got the, they got the ball back off the Carl Joseph interception. And outside of that Baker sneak, they had a couple of concepts that were a little bit weird. And then the third and long play, they didn't even try to go for the sticks. They did the check down with Kareem Hunt, and he was rally tackled by the Chiefs defense. And I, I know maybe Stefanski was banking on, we're going to get the ball back. We're going to get Chad Haney. We're going to get this stop. And they didn't. He made a controversial challenge on a Tyreek Hill passing concept catch that if you just looked at the huge screen that is in Arrowhead, he would see, oh, man, he made that catch. Lost the timeline off of that. And then on third down and 15, I get it. Everybody's bad deep protecting the sticks. But you also have to realize you're not playing Patrick Mahomes. You're playing Chad Henney, who just showcased to you that he struggles to get the football deep down the field like that on a drive. Because he, when, he when he took a vertical shot down the field, it was a basically a punt that was intercepted by the defense. So I understand protecting the sticks, but you also got to watch the quarterback. You can't let the quarterback break contain and basically get all the yards except one back to make fourth down, fourth and manageable. And then on the fourth down, I give them a pass because I honestly think they didn't think they were going to go for it. It didn't look like they were going to go for it, but when they did, they weren't ready and they got beat. Cleveland came up really small down the stretch because they're a year ahead of schedule. Stefanski did a great job of molding Baker Mayfield into the franchise quarterback that, Cle that Cleveland signed up for. And while I think Baker did enough to ensure that he can get a option exercise, probably going to have to duplicate that success again to ensure that it wasn't a fluke, to ensure that maybe him and Stefanski do have solid rapport. But in the NFL, what the league has shown, and me as a Saints fan, I genuinely know, when your window is there, you got to take it. So all these people saying, oh, Cleveland's building something. They'll be right back. There's no guarantee. Nick Chubb is their best running back, right? He has an injury history dating back to college. There's no guarantee he's going to be relatively healthy next season. Kareem Hunt's played relatively well as well. And even if Chubb's out, Kareem Hunt can be your bell cow. But they work best when both of those guys are healthy and the bad for running off of each other productively. Baker Mayfield has taken a great step. And a lot is because they built an offensive line around him that's protecting him, allowed him to go through his progressions and be successful as a pocket passer. However, Baker Mayfield has still limited. Um, doesn't have the strongest arm, has a tendency to lock in on his receivers and press the issue. 
and he's not the most athletic, and he is undersized, and he does play in a division that's going to get better. Baltimore is going to be back. Cincinnati's going to be building something. And although Pittsburgh's probably going to take a step back at the quarterback position, they're going to be there. And so while on paper, you can say coming into the year, Cleveland's going to be arguably one of the better teams in their division. They were ahead of schedule. I felt like they benefited off of beating a lot of weak teams on their on their schedule. They benefited off of being a Pittsburgh team that played horrible in the first quarter and weren't able to dig themselves out of that humongous hole that they put themselves in. And then when they played against a team in Kansas City that even when Mahomes was out, didn't beat themselves. The Chiefs only turned the ball over once. Cleveland turned it over twice, including one ill-advised play that didn't wind up to bite them, but it ended a possession that could have been successful out of the half. Baker locked in on his receiver, and he got baited by Honey Badger. Can't make that throw. Chiefs turned over once. And so I knew coming into the game, Kansas City's not going to turn over four times. So when the Cleveland Browns defense actually has to stop the opposition and not get let off the hook with an elevated decision made by the, the, you know, the quarterback they're going against, can they do that? And as I think about it, I don't think the Browns punted at all in that game. And, you know, I'm going to pull it up on my computer as of now as I continue talking. I think outside of that punt interception, and I call it a punt interception because the the duck that that Chad Henney threw on that play was in essence a glorified punt. Outside of that interception and a couple of missed field goals made by how made executed by the Kansas City kicker, they Harrison Buckner they didn't punt the football. They didn't punt the football. So if the Chiefs didn't miss a field goal and Henney didn't throw that pick. Cleveland showcased they weren't taking Kansas City off the field. Even when they made Kansas City drive the length of the field, Kansas City inevitably always put themselves in position to get a point some way, whether it was a touchdown, whether it was a field goal. And even when they missed it, it was an opportunity that they put themselves in. And I think that game showcased one thing, a couple things. Number one, the Chiefs as an offense are way more substance field that people give them credit for and they have the resources on offense and defense that will always make them a tough out even if Patrick Mahomes isn't able to play I don't think Buffalo is going to run in here against even against Chad Henney and beat them because they have that championship pedigree within them to make that game a tough out however they do need Patrick Mahomes to win the AFC and go to the Super Bowl but if Patrick Mahomes is there and he's relatively healthy. He doesn't have to be 100. If he's 80%, they're going to be a tough out because what that playoff game showed me is that Kansas City, like I always thought throughout the year, they can win a multitude of ways. They took their foot off the gas against a lot of opponents in the regular season. But against Cleveland, when Mahomes was there, it was a grinded out game. It never felt like Cleveland was in it. Even if Rashard Higgins would have scored off of that play, if Swarson didn't force it, Who's to say Kansas City still doesn't go down the field and kick a field goal or score a touchdown? No, it just didn't feel like Kansas City was out of the game until Mahomes was out of the game. And that's how you're going to have to beat Kansas City moving forward until they lose some key defensive pieces, until maybe Tyree Kill or Travis Kelsey get hurt. If that same team coexists and they're relatively healthy and they continue to play playoff football with each other for the next two to three years, 
the only way you're going to beat them is Mahomes has an off day or Mahomes gets hurt. Like, it's really that simple. He got knocked out the game. Cleveland should have won that football game. They came up small offensively. And her defense, who I said coming into the playoffs was the second worst defense in the whole tournament outside of Tennessee, was going to be their downfall. It wasn't their downfall against Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh gave them gifts. But when Kansas City wasn't giving them gifts and they had to get these guys off the field on third downs, which they did a relatively somewhat good job off of, but 50% third down defense isn't good. Even when they got them off the field on third down, they were always in position to get points and field goals or things of that nature. And if it wasn't a windy day, you know, and Buckner makes his field goals because he missed two, I think, that's six extra points. This game's probably not even close. And so Cleveland, great team. Not, let me back check on the great team comment. They're a budding team. But there's no guarantee that you're just going to be bad because they're building something. Carolina was building something. Atlanta looked like they were building something when they went to the Super Bowl. And since they went to the Super Bowl, Carolina went to the playoffs one more time and haven't been back since. Atlanta went to the playoffs, I think. Yeah, Atlanta went to the playoffs one more time. And that's it. Like, that. that's it. And so, they're, you know, when that window's open, take it. And that was a great one for Cleveland. You beat Kansas City, I give them just as good of a chance to beat Buffalo because Buffalo's shown in this playoffs that they haven't played their most complete football. Their defense has been vulnerable. They've just gotten off the hook because they defense has played two quarterbacks in Rivers, who's old, and Lamar, who just isn't there as a developmental passer. They faced two quarterbacks that their opposition had that they had to face that just aren't there yet either because they're still developing or they're shelling themselves because they're older as passers. And it allowed them to get away with a lot of, you know, drives where, yeah, they probably give up the length of the field on a possession, but inevitably seven wasn't guaranteed. A three wasn't guaranteed at times because those kickers were inconsistent. Mahomes is healthy and he's there. You're putting yourself to the fire by continuously gambling on the fact that we're going to bend and break. We're going to bend and break. We're going to bend and break because eventually the Chiefs offense will break you because they can beat you in a multitude of ways. And they're a pretty darn good power run football team too. And Buffalo has shown throughout the playoffs, they struggle against the run. Last divisional game I'm going to talk about before I wrap it all up saying how I look at these AOC, NFC champion games panning out. Tampa Bay and the Saints, this is a tough one. I've been hurt for the past few days. I'm taking it a little bit better now. But I'm going to say it. Bump it, bro. I'm going to say it. I don't care. Drew Brees is why the Saints are in the NFC. Let me, let me slow down. Drew Brees is why the New Orleans Saints aren't in the NFC championship game right now. Drew Brees is the reason why the New Orleans Saints in the four-year span since that great 2017 draft where they hit homers is why they haven't made it out the NFC conference. Although in that four-year span, they've won the most games out of everyone in the NFC during that four-year span. And here we are. Drew is gone. He's going to retire after a tumultuous finish to his career. He threw three picks, didn't crack 200 yards. Um, he's only sacked once, and it was bad. The first pick was on him. It wasn't a good read. You could clearly see that Murphy Bunton was 
was sitting on the on the outside route. He was sitting on the route. He was sitting on the out. And if you're not going to lead the ball towards the boundary to where only Thomas can make the tough catch or is an incomplete pass, then don't make the throw. Know your limitations. He took it. Tampa Bay went down there and scored. The second pick, miscommunication between him and Alvin Kamara. But even if Alvin Kamara was looking for it, he was going to get murdered. And it was an anticipatory through that breeze rushed in a tight window because he knew that that was his best option because he wasn't trying to test the boundaries anymore. It was a horrible passing display in the second half. It was horrible all game. But in the fourth quarter in particular, it was bad. Drew Brees sold the bag. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, Jerry Cook formed the football for the second turnover when we were on the move and we were up seven. But even in that drive and the drives after, we got up 2013 because we established Alvin Kamara. And then after that, we stopped establishing Alvin Kamara. We had a plethora of shotgun passing concepts executed to imperfection. And we just stayed away from that power run concept that we had with Alvin Kamara. We did what Tampa Bay didn't do. Tampa Bay didn't try to establish the passing game based upon the pedigree of Tom Brady. They rolled the legs of Leonard Fournette. They rolled the legs of Ronald Jones. And that once wanted Saints run defense that suffocated David Montgomery was inevitably neutralized against Tampa. And that rushing attack elevated Tampa. And Drew Beasley's horrible passing performance helped him because defensively they executed Devin White with a huge pick. Murphy Bundy with a huge pick. You know, and the, and the cook interception, that was just the icing on the cake or whatever. But Drew resold. And he hasn't been the same system in a sort of miracle. He showed lapses in that game as well because we were down 17-0 in that game because Drew Brees was off that game. He improved in the second half. But if he played decent in the first half, we're probably not down 17-0 and we probably win the game. And just the Rams, although the refs robbed the team, Drew Brees played horrible in that game. And just like in the 2020 matchup against Tampa Bay in the divisional, we established a run against the Rams and scored off of it. And then we strayed away from the running game altogether. And we almost got away with it because we were able to execute that vertical bomb to take again late. And then looked like we were going to get a pass interference call on the outside. Refs didn't call it. We go to overtime and get the ball back. Drew Brees throws a pick. 2019 against the Vikings. Although Adam Thielen gave Marshawn Lattimore the business. Dalvin Cook wasn't 100%. And although our, our, our offensive line was getting dominated by Everson Griffin and Daniel Hunter. Taysom Hill and those trick plays allowed us to put ourselves in a position to win. And then Drew Brees sold the bag. Dumb interception thrown before the half in the first half. And then he threw a dumb pick when we were in the red zone that allowed the Vikings to go down. And well, didn't a lot of Vikings, didn't a lot of Vikings to go down this court. I think it just allowed the Vikings to not feel the pressure of being down by a, more than a field goal. And then in this game, he was horrible. So everybody was giving Drew Brees his flowers. He should get him. Had a Hall of Fame career, a great run with the Saints. The Saints helped revitalize a career that everybody thought was left for dead once he left San Diego with the broken arm. Not the broken arm, but the but the torn shoulder. However, as a fan, it hits different because all four years, he was the reason we weren't able to fulfill our potential. And after about two years, you would think the organization and the coaching staff would be like, that's the reason why we're not living up to our potential. We've built a nice offensive line around him. He's got a nice 
duo of running backs, uh, all pro receiver and nice and underrated complimentary parts when they're healthy, a tight end too, and then defensively finally got that number two corner outside of Lattimore, although Jenkins is old. We've got the D-line. we got the secondary. The defense has finally arrived. The QB's holding us back. Held us back for four years. Held us back for four years. And now we're in cap hell. And because we're in cap hell, even if Drew, even when Drew Bees leaves, and we're forced to start over at the quarterback position, we're not going to be able to resign people. I expect Michael Thomas to get traded. I don't expect Marcus Williams to come back. Uh, guys on the roster are probably going to have to take cuts. We're going to really have to hit in the draft because we're not going to be able to get free agents. And in essence, we're going to start not a full-blown rebuild, but a remodified rebuild where we're going to start over at quarterback. Probably might cheapen a receiver room by maybe drafting a young receiver on the cheap in the third or fourth round. And maybe invest a little bit more in the secondary. There's guys that are up, though. Ramchick, Lattimore, they're up. And we're obviously going to exercise their contracts. But inevitably, when they're officially up as free agents the year after next, we got to make sure we have money to pay them. Right now, we don't have money to pay anybody. That's up. We don't have money to extend anybody if we want to. And so, and Breeze, just because he's going to retire, that money is still in the books. It's going to be a tough rebuild for the Saints. And I was telling the fans on the internet, 7-9 is back. 7-9 is back. And it's a damn shame. Because in a four-year span, we were a legit NFC title contender. But we can never get out the conference because of the quarterback play. And I don't think fans are going to admit that until years later. Because right now, the love affair of Drew Brees is still high. Because he's going and he's done so much for the city and the franchise. And such a short span, if you think about it. But, hey. The fan here is talking, and I'm looking at it like, look, he held his bag. And guys are going to regret that moving forward beyond their playing days. And that's just a really unfortunate thing because all they took was after the Rams game for the franchise to be like, you know what? We got to put a plug on him and maximize the next two years with this group with somebody else that we can put in that may not have the pedigree that Drew Brees has, may not be as talented as Drew Brees was in his prime, but he's better than Drew Brees now. And that will give us the best chance to win. Wrap it all up. Going to talk about the NFC Championship and AFC Championship games. The first one that's going to be played on TV on Fox is going to be the Bucks and the Packers. I have Green Bay. Green Bay, even though they beat the Saints, and I feel like the Saints gave the Buccaneers a W. I don't really feel like Tampa Bay was a better team. I don't even think – I don't even feel like Tampa Bay beat us. I just felt like they utilized the resources that the Saints gave them, and they executed it to their highest level. You can call me salty. I don't care. That's that's just how I feel. Um, that's honestly how I feel. It's a lot different from the Viking game where even though I acknowledge Drew Brees played bad, I can say Vikings beat us. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I can't say that with Tampa. They're beat up in the secondary. Sean Murphy Bunting was limping around a lot. He's going to probably play, but he might not be 100%. Carlton Davis was talking that stuff, but he was he was getting his bell rung a little bit as well in the secondary. Their secondary was getting beat up. And Antonio Brown might not play at the receiver position. So they're going to be 
physically worn down heading up there to Lambeau. And while they're going to play a packing team that's probably refreshed off of your easy win, I think Green Bay is going to enact revenge. And the one way they're going to do it, they're going to run Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams, and A.J. Dillon with force and with consistency. And I think that will be enough to allow Green Bay to head back to the Super Bowl for the first time in over a decade. And they will probably be playing the Kansas City Chiefs because I'm going to go on a limb and say Patrick Mahomes will play. Mahomes will play, and when he's available, Kansas City's going to showcase that Buffalo's run has ran its course. And I think Buffalo's been really fortunate, like I said before, by playing quarterbacks that are limited in what they can do in the passing game and teams that haven't been able to execute on the opportunities that they've out that they've outgiven themselves in comparison to what Buffalo's been given. Kansas City's not going to do it. If Kansas City... He's going to outrun this team, which they probably will. They're going to outpass this team, which they probably will. They're going to outgain this team offensively, not turn the ball over, get four or five red zone possessions. They're going to win by double digits. I don't think it'll be a double digit win. It'll be a close game, probably come down to the last couple of possessions. Healthy Mahomes is there. I got Kansas City coming out, which means we're going to have the state form Super Bowl. Packers, Chiefs. I'm going to wait to give my AFC prediction. Until I know for sure Mahomes is going to play. Probably going to let us know about that either Friday or Saturday, either the day before or the day before the day before. And we'll see where that goes. Now, to wrap up the podcast, I have a announcement, an analysis about how I feel about the James Harden move to the Brooklyn Nets. Now, when James Harden got traded to the Nets and Levert, Jared Allen, they went their separate ways. Allen went to Cleveland. Karis Overt went to the Indiana Pacers. Everybody and their mama was like, oh my gosh, they got James Harden. Oh my gosh, with Kevin, with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, those three guys, prolific scorers, they need the ball. It's not going to work. Ever since then, James Harden has been running the point. Got that 30-point triple-double in his first game against the Magic. They won a close one. Another close one against the Milwaukee Bucks, one of the premier teams in the Eastern Conference. They were the number one seed in the standings in the East at the time. Beat them. James Harden, 30-plus point game with 11-plus assists. Harden's acknowledged he's going to be on his best point guard behavior. He's got to improve his point guard skills. And I let my friends in the group chat, I let people know on Instagram, it's going to work even when Kyrie comes back. But it's going to work when he's not there. Because James Harden's going to run the point. Here's why. I, unlike they, were watching the Brooklyn Nets before James Harden came on the team. Spencer Dinwiddie, before he got hurt, was their point guard. Kyrie was running off the ball. Durant was running off the ball. And Dinwiddie was being the conductor and orchestrator of the offense. Now, it looked funky, and it didn't look ideal, because Dinwiddie isn't a natural point. But considering that they got Harden to compensate for their loss to their lack of a bench now since they had the markets, their top two bench rotation guys to get them and to make up for the loss of Dimwitty on the roster at the floor general, you go take Dimwitty's spot. He's a better scorer than Dimwitty. He's a better passer than Dimwitty. He's a better playmaker than Dimwitty. He's a better offensive threat than Spencer Dimwitty. So when Kyrie comes back into the floor on Wednesday and they, these trio of guys start playing on the regular, 
the bench isn't going to be as much of a problem because one of the stars are going to get their minutes staggered depending on how the game is going. So Harden is going to play with the bench at some points. Durant is going to run with the bench at some points. And Kyrie is going to run with the bench at some points. By the way, that bench isn't as bad as people say it is. Bruce Brown has given them pretty good minutes. Luau Cabro has been a nice, solid, underrated finding for them as a 3 and D guy. And they sometimes play Chioza here and there. Um, they like the Perry guy, the young individual from Mississippi State. I still think they need a backup big. But their bench, while it wasn't what it was coming into the year, it's not as bad as what people say. And it won't truly be as horrific as people thought. Because Nash, D'Antoni, Stoudemire, they're going to stagger the Stars' minutes with the second unit. Also, James Harden is going to be the one that's going to take the step back. I know from a hierarchy standpoint, people are thinking Kyrie is not the better player than Durant and Harden. So if you're not the better player, then you got to take the step back. It's not how it's going to work on this team. Because on this team, when Kyrie Irving was the primary ball handler, because the primary ball handler is going to be the guy that's going to take the step back. Because he's going to have to, out of the three, because he's going to be the guy that's going to help get other guys involved, as well as allow those other two prolific scorers to get off-ball opportunities towards the basket, which will make their lives a lot easier as scorers. Who's the best playmaker out of those three? Harden. So who's going to be assisting and allowing Durant and Irving to get their 15 to 20 shots again at an efficient level? Harden. So who's going to be taking, in essence, less shots? Who's going to have a less point average? Who's going to have their assist totals heightened? James Harden. So yes, because they had Kyrie run the point last year before he got hurt. And this year when Dimwitty was out and when Durant was out with COVID, it didn't look good because Kyrie Irving's not a great passer. He's not a great playmaker. Great ball handler, great finisher around the rim, underrated mid-range game. Probably the best post guard score we have in all of basketball and that three-point shot especially in rhythm is lethal sucks at playing so why would he be handling the basketball and helping get everybody get involved and these people saying oh he's gonna be a clay thompson on certain plays yeah they'll have him come off a scurl curl scurls and they'll have him come off of curls down screens back doors they do that with durant too if anything, Durant's more so going to be the clay and Kyrie going to be the Steph. And what I mean by that is Durant is the more proficient scorer off the ball in rhythm. He's going to be running that Clay Thompson as plays because that's what he was doing in Golden State. That's what he was doing in OKC. He's going to be running off the pin downs, the back doors, the post ups. Kyrie is going to still get five to six ISOs a game. And Kyrie is still going to get his heat checks, too. However, he's going to get a lot of his shots, though, in rhythm. Because James Harden is going to be giving him rhythmic opportunities in the floor of the offense to get buckets. So Kyrie ain't going to be taking a step back. That's going to be James. James is going to have to be the point guard that this team needs. Because Durant and Irvin have showed that they're at their best in the offense when they're not the primary ball handlers throughout the game. Now, when they need to be to make it happen, then yeah. But they're not the primary ball handlers throughout the game. Harden will be. He'll allow those guys to get easy buckets when they're full of offense. That's why I think he'll be successful. The only weakness this team will have is defense. Because Harden 
and Irving as a defensive backcourt ain't locking down. I, I think they're both defensively underrated because their defensive ratings are sort of bad because they selectively have chosen not to throughout their careers to play that hard defensively because they want to conserve themselves offensively. I don't see them doing that as much since they have two other guys on their team that can get buckets. So they'll probably take a more concerted effort on that end of the floor, knowing that they don't have to fully conserve all their energy to help this team win because they got two other dudes that can get buckets too. Another thing as well, they do need a backup big. They're undersized, and currently right now, DeAndre Jordan, who's starting, he just looks washed up. And I, I know they had to give up Jared Allen to make this work, but I never understood when Jared Allen was on the team why he didn't start over DeAndre Jordan. Like, like granted, I know why he didn't. It's kind of a rhetorical statement I'm making. He didn't because DeAndre is Katie and Kyrie's friend. That's why he's on the team. That's another reason why everybody making a hashtag trade Kyrie. That's not going to happen, at least for this year, because KD and Kyrie are a part of each other because Kyrie and KD made that happen while we see that guy go. So that was never like a realistic option, especially since they want to keep KD beyond this contract that he just signed. That duo is going to be fine. It's going to depend. I think the only thing that's going to be the issue is Kyrie emotional availability as a basketball player, right? He's going through a lot. And is he going to be emotionally invested on the court every day for the next month, you know, variety of months throughout the season? If he is, they're going to be fine. If he's not, it's going to be tough. But I don't think it's going to be as tough offensively as people are saying within the court. They're going to get their buckets. Hard's going to run the point. Irving's going to be playing more of an off-ball shooting guard role who's still going to get his isos. He's still going to get his post-ups. But he's going to get a lot of rhythmic shot opportunities in the Florida offense as well. That'll make him a more efficient scorer, and that'll make the offense even more efficient. And you know the guy that's going to be the biggest winner out of all of this? Joe Harris. He had 20 points last night against the Bucks. He's going to be getting wide open jump shots. And that's going to make all the difference. Their problem is going to be def- defense and Another big in their inner rotation because I don't think the big that they have is enough. If they can get into the Andre Drummond sweepstakes, they should. I don't know if economically they'll be able to. Maybe if Cleveland's able to buy out Drummond's contract, then yeah, I would I would entertain Drummond, who's not going to be the defensive beast that DeAndre is, but he's going to be getting the rebounds. He's going to be more of a threat offensively as a scorer, and he's in the prime of his career. So. I'd make that happen. Other than that, it was a great day talking with you guys. Episode six of the podcast is here. It's here. It's here. Great segment that we've had together with, with <clears throat> great segment that I've had with you guys that are potentially listening. It's been a great 2021 for me so far. Can't wait for it to continue. Other than that, I hope you guys have a great day. We'll be back next week. Same day, same frame of time with NFL, NBA news, and updates. Hope you guys have a blessed week. Peace.